What was always our mission was not to be a benefit or a perk. We want to really create value for organizations and to become part of their internal processes to make change. Because when you're just a perk, it's so easy to push you away the moment budgets are cut, for example. Welcome to Venturing Women, a podcast about female founders, investors and ecosystem enablers. Hi, this is Daria Kamkalova, your host. If you're building a product or service, what is your most burning question when times get tough? When the economy goes down, people and companies alike tend to ditch products and services that are non-essential. Is your product or service essential? Or will it be easily discarded? Now, my second question is this. Is mental health essential? It sounds like a banality. Of course it is. But are people and companies willing to pay for it? Hmm, not necessarily. In this episode, I'm talking to Victoria Lindner and Leone Ellerbrock, co-founders of Mindsurance. It is a digital mental health care platform that connects employees with therapists, coaches, and digital mental health tools. Leone is the chief operating officer, and Victoria is the CEO. We speak about them launching a B2C marketplace for mental health services. Marketplaces are hot, right? Everyone wants to build the next Uber for X or an Airbnb for something. But for the Mindsurance founding team, the marketplace business model was a dead end. It just wouldn't be a product for the customers to stick with. Interestingly enough, this idea came from the investors of Mindsurance. How did the story unfold? Listen in. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Leonie. Welcome to Venturing Women. Hi. Hi, thank you. <laughs> I'm super excited because we are recording this live in Berlin. I'm happy to be back in Berlin for a while, and I'm very happy that I managed to catch you and br bring us to the studio. It's always very exciting. I mean, we are here, right? We are based in Berlin, and we are from Berlin, so it's not so hard to catch us. <laughs> it was. I, I was traveling. I was traveling yeah. in winter. It was harder for me to be <laughs> to be here, and that's why I'm so excited. Good. Why a business around mental health? What's the story behind selecting this market segment? Well, I think the story is, of course, is always a personal story as well. I'm a clinical psychologist from my background. I studied clinical psychology, then started into the world, venture world. You're analyzing me <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> I think that's really kind of a fairy tale that everybody is always analyzing and scanning the You're room. Not? not? You're, so you're just dismantling the myth. No, 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 not really. I mean, there are some myths that might be true, but this one not, I think. <laughs> So clinical psychologist from the background was always, of course, interested in this entire topic. So I was the initiator of this entire project and I was always working in the HR field before. I also had my first startup in the HR field. I was always interested in this field and I, I witnessed the market a lot. How is it going to develop? You can see in the States already that there was a lot going on because uh, startups like Modern Health, Spring Health and so on arise there. And then COVID happened. And for me, it was just a tipping point where I thought, okay, this thing is going to come to Europe now. And And for me, it was then the point where I say, okay, now or never, right? Let's go into the mental health space because it will be a growing market. It will become more necessary, not only for adults, but also for young people. And we can see it also for Gen Z. It becomes more and more a topic. I met Leonie, I met Vitor, my two co-founders, and we decided to start the company together and go into this journey. 
Interestingly enough, I met Vitor because we were both mentors at the Accelerates program of the ESMMT, the business school in Berlin. And when he heard that I host a podcast that I interview female founders, he told me, oh, you should definitely interview my co-founders. So this is how we happen to be here now. You mentioned there is a personal story, and I totally understand this observation of the market and looking at the trends and what's going to happen here in Europe. Is there also an element of your personal story, maybe someone in your family, your friends, maybe it was your own struggles, um, anything that gives it a little bit more of a personal touch? Coming back to the fairy tales about studying psychology, there is always a personal attachment to this topic. I grew up with some mental problems in the family. I was always very aware of it. I read a lot of books about it to better understand it in my childhood in a way. And this was also, of course, something that brought me in first place to study psychology because I was just interested in learning about it. However, later then figured out that I'm definitely not, let's say, the therapist persona. What is a therapist persona, I wonder? I think it's something, someone that needs patience and I'm terrible with patience. Like, it's crazy. Things are never going fast enough for me. And you really need to listen a lot. And that's definitely not me, to be very honest. So, What made you join the team? Or what picked your curiosity in the space, Leonie? I also have a bachelor in psychology, but I studied business afterwards. So I worked in business development operations. So building startups is my job. And before I joined my insurance, I actually joined another mental health startup, uh, Vivea. And And that during that time, I also discovered therapy for myself because I was a very typical business persona, right? Like I always strive to be the best. I always wanted to reach the next goals. Overachiever. Yeah, completely. And inside this hamster wheel, I always felt like by reaching the next point, I would become more happy, more lucky, whatever. And at some point you realize it's not true. Not happening. Yeah. And then I also started therapy. I'm very happy that I did it. And I discovered that... Therapy is actually more helpful at an early point where you might not be sick yet. And there are so many people out there that didn't study psychology, don't work in a mental health startup that would benefit from it extremely. So when Vicky approached me, I was like, yes, I totally see the need there. And there's no team out there that really solves this problem of matching and getting people into mental health services that have very high chances of a very high impact doing that. Since you're talking about this, let's speak a little bit about this problem that you identified. How did you define your first hypothesis? What were the opportunities on the market that you were trying to address? Of course, we pivoted a lot, right? I know, I know. So actually, we started with a platform model initially, but in the B2C space, because we said, okay, there are so many services, and what's missing is some marketplace or integrator that has all these services and gets the user to them to match the users with the right service. However, then we figured, okay, um, not that easy. We tried another B2B model, went back to B2C to scale the knowledge of psychological creators. And that's where we started to develop a digital product from where also my insurance got created from. When we built the aggregator of the suppliers, right, which I think was very innovative in a way that we also were the first ones that covered DIGAS, so-called digital interventions that are paid by insurance. What is that? So it's kind of a, it's a medical product, a digital medical product where Germany and I think now France and Belgium are the first countries that offer this. It's basically an app that is regularly paid by insurance. We spotted that there is also a very, very 
big opportunity coming with these things because that's a regulatory change that happened in 2020. Like apps are paid by insurance, which was never possible before. And we thought, okay, this will really change the digital therapeutics market for sure. And this was also why we decided from the beginning to not only bring the classical therapists and practitioners on the platform, but also focus a lot on digital interventions like apps for therapy. And we created our matching algorithm in a way of how we figured out how severe the symptoms of a person need to be to bring them in what kind of product. So for example, when is a meditation right for you? Tell me, when is a meditation right for me? To make it short, when you are a prevention case and not a treatment case. If we look at the surge of mental health issues in the country, I was listening to some news today that just early this morning and it was said that people were on sick leave so often last year that instead of having a 2.5% of the GDP growth, we only had 1.8%. Potentially, we lost 0.7 percentage points of the GDP growth last year just because people were sick. And clearly, it's not just mental health issues, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that mental health problems were a very strong contributor to that too. Absolutely. But now think about the ones that were not on sick leave, but still came yeah. to work. So this is called presentism. That means the productivity level is, of course, not where it's supposed to be. Yeah. And there is no way to really calculate and measure the impact of this presentism. So, all right, you build this pool of suppliers, you began talking to early customers, you pivoted from B2C to B2B. How did you test your ideas? We were always very fast testers. So for example, once we build up our aggregator and we opened the platform for the B2C customers with a lot of smoke tests, we put some marketing campaigns in Facebook, Instagram, we saw that people signed up, that there was really big demand. The biggest problem was the payment. It's not a big self-payment market in Germany. So people were always like, oh my God, yeah, I love this. I really want to start a therapy, but oh, oh it, I have to pay for it. Oh no, then I cannot do it. And we had a lot of young people in it as well. Of course, they don't have 2000 euros for self payment therapy. So how do you change this consumer behavior? Because you need to educate people, right? So they, you need to show the value that they would potentially derive from this treatment. That's true, but we didn't. What we did is basically we pivoted into the B2B space because we thought the user themselves, they are not willing to pay, right? M maybe for one, two sessions, but it's not a long-term commitment. The second thing, insurance companies, they might pay later, but it's a very long way. You need a long breath to convince them maybe in five years with a lot of data, with a lot of like awareness to say, okay, we pay for your service because we see the benefit. So we thought, okay, who else is left? So who else can be benefit also from us? It's not only about like finding a payer, it's also about finding a value proposition for someone that in the end benefits also from it. The clear answer for us was organizations or workplaces, because in the end, exactly as you said, we saw the raising sickness days. We saw that presentism is a huge thing. We saw how Corona and also now, of course, political situations affect the mental health of people. It's a huge cost for companies to not cover this and to not take responsibility for from the inside of the organization to change this. And this was for us then the moment where we said, okay, it's it's time. Let's let's go into the B2B space and you cannot just translate the B2C product exactly into B2B space. So this was also the moment for us to say, okay, a pure marketplace would not work in the B2B space because there's just not enough value proposition for the organizations. Why not? Um, because it's nice to help your employees to do the matchmaking and to find the right solutions for them. But in the end, organizations also are in a way selfish about what can I get out of here, right? So can you deliver me data? Can you deliver me insights I don't have yet about my workforce in general, right? So about it's a little bit of a surveillance story or do I misunderstand it? Mm, 
Like what kind of insights would companies be interested in? They're, of course, they are very interested in people analytics because mm-hmm. they can make forecasts, let's say engagement, uh, people analytics of their workforce, which is very interesting data for them to And spooky. I mean, as an employee, I would say if my employer wants to collect some data from my therapy sessions, I would freak out. Yeah, I think the the most <laughs> important part... <laughs> that's not how it works. No, no. <laughs> the most important part here is always to anonymize data. So it's never about getting personalized data about someone booking a therapy session or something like that. It's more about like metadata of your workforce. Mm-hmm. It's about seeing, for example, in the last quarter, the sickness rate of your sales team increased or something like that. It's more about metadata where you can really see, is my workforce engaged, where there's some things happening that are maybe making them more or less engaged in a way. Yeah, to give you an example, maybe. So we have a client that rolled us out. They were interested in, on how many people were using us and the data they wanted to see, okay, how many people are actually using a product for mental health? Is there a systemic problem because there are so many people that actually were searching for help? And how can we solve that? Is it going to be better once we have this offer or do we see no change at all. So for them, it's much more about understanding the general workforce, but we are never giving out data about what people people are actually using, what's happening inside that, right? Because what's also very important is that the users can trust us and their organization that no data gets out of that and that they can confidentially improve their mental health and their well-being without anyone knowing about it. But for the organization, it's very important to know if there's actually a problem, like are people Uh, going into therapy because the management is so bad or are people going into therapy because they are understaffed and everyone is super stressed out. And when you see a lot of people going into stress management prevention, that could also mean that you have to change something about your organization and a structure, right? So these are more the kind of data we provide so that everyone is safe to do whatever they want to do. And the organization also can benefit on top of having a healthier workforce. Mm. How did you know that you had found your product market fit and how did you measure that? I think product market fit is a very interesting KPI and uh, there's a lot of rumor about how to measure it. A lot of people say it's a feeling. You feel it when things Where? are just going in, in smooth. In your kidneys, in no, your it's more like heart. Like, you, know, you just feel you're in the flow. Things go smooth. You can see you're growing. Do they ever go smooth in a startup world? Yeah, I can a little bit relate with this, but it's also very superficial to say it. You can feel it because feelings in the end, it's nothing data driven. Normally you speak about product market fit when you can see growth regarding customer base, you don't see a lot of churn so you basically have a bigger net revenue retention or companies become more valuable rather than they churn. You not only get new customers, you also don't lose them. And the ones you get, they actually become more valuable over time because they start to use your product more. There's coming more engagement over time and time. So when did you see that you found yours? We found ours, I would say, not, as I said, exactly when we went to B2B because we also had to do some twitches inside of the product because we need to better understand what actually organizations want from us as well. Because what was always our mission was not to be a benefit or a perk. We want to really create value for organizations and to become part of their internal processes to make change. Because when you're just a perk, it's so easy to push you away the moment budgets are cut, for example. And we put a lot 
lot of effort in our product development regarding the software side. For us, it is always the vision to become more the operating system inside of organizations where they can manage their entire mental health care operations in general. It's not about a specific product, or, uh, for example, one-on-one -on -one sessions. It's more in general managing your mental health care operations. This means data about what is needed, being able to customize your own mental health program inside of your organization, deciding when to support with what kind of initiatives, is the sickness rate going down and so on. So it was really more about like becoming a fundamental part or opening also kind of a new category inside of organizations, which is about workplace healthcare initiatives and workplace healthcare management. I think this was not yet in the market. There were more, let's say, perks in the mental health space available and we don't want it to be a perk. And that was our way to product market fit to become this integrated software provider. Do you recall this moment when you realized, okay, we don't want to be this marketplace, we want to be a software provider. Maybe it was a conversation with a customer. Maybe it was some kind of a different event when you said, okay, that's it. That's the direction that we have to go. The strongest concern we had was our talks to investors. Investors were raising the concern that a platform alone is not enough to have really a value proposition that's defensible. We realized that it's not enough to just be a platform or to just offer some services within the company, but you have to really be inside the company structure to have a defensible product that's also really strong against competition. And that is something that's new in the market, that has a strong value proposition and where they see a very big and strong case for them to invest. Since you're talking about investors, what is your fundraising strategy and what were the challenges along the way? The first very important decision we had to make in the beginning was, are we going to be a VC case? Because that's something totally different than just building a mental health care agency, for example. I'm really right? glad that you bring it up. It's, it's so important to really decide, do you want to be a venture capital case or not? What are the strings attached? changed definitely for this decision and this needs to be clear to actually everyone right when you want to become a venture capital case you need to be very clear about this thing needs to go big it needs to have the right unit economics it needs to bring return to investors because they, it's not just that they invest in you because they are all altruists right so that's not the they case. are not no they are not of course i do myself angel investments and i'm also not doing it just because i want to help people that's the reality you need to be very clear about that you're not only having stakeholders as a customer. So it's not only about the product market fit. The customer, of course, needs to love your product. But for example, us as an agency, there might be customers that love this because we have a lot of attention to them. We might do a great job, but it's not scalable in that way because it's not a tech product. At the moment you decide to go into the VC space, you need to really understand that it needs to fly. And the, the goal is the unicorn and the 100 million ARR, and that's what you need to deliver. And you bring another party of stakeholders in it, which also have interests. And it's not only about your romantic imagination of me and my amazing healthcare company that helps people. It's really about also delivering numbers and really showing growth. A lot of people ask us actually, why software? Why software in the mental health space? Is, isn't it a, such a personal topic? Yeah, it is. But we try to think it in a way that it is also not only a personal topic, but also a VC case. And this has basically brought us then into the software space where we said, okay, we need to find a way to not be a perk because it might not be the next unicorn and it might not have enough 
technological mold to grow to that stage where we want to grow it. And this was basically the tipping point for us to also say, okay, we need to go into the software space and we need to find another way to combine all the stakeholder demands, which is, as I said, not only the customer wanting us to build an amazing product they love, but also the VCs wanting us to build a product they see an investment case in. So this was definitely a challenge to find there the sweet spot. So you said as soon as you decided you want to build a VC case, things changed. Yeah. So what what changed for you? It changed the product for sure. It was also a change for our mindset. It is about growth in the end. It is about the unit economics. It is about gross margins. It is about numbers. And it's not only about the romantic imagination of helping people, which is, of course, always a fundamental of our company. But now you need to bring it into a growth case. I never want to say that something's better than the other. For example, a lot of people have amazing ideas, but they are not a VC case for me. And I think there's something the media also plays in. Everybody always think I need to raise money. I need to make rounds with VCs so I can grow my product. First of all, I think it's important to be aware what it means to go into the venture capital space. And second of all, it's also important to understand there can be great products with 10 employees and you are happy because you just do your agency business and you don't need to raise money. Maybe some angels that support you, but that's okay. I'm glad that we're talking about that because I had a couple of investors addressing this topic on the podcast, but I haven't had founders on the show who would be so open about it. I think all of us, all the founders that are in the venture capital space know what they signed up for. There are a lot of very successful founders, big exits, and now they're doing their solopreneur businesses because they learned their lesson about what it means to be in the venture capital space. It can never be small. You always have to grow. And especially when you did this for five, 10 years, a lot of founders are also very happy to now do something very small just for themselves. <laughs> But I want to add something here. I think it also depends a lot on who your investors are. Everything that Vicky said is true, but we are very lucky with our investors. They are people that really support us. It feels like we got an extended team that helps us with different topics and some angels that are extremely invested into helping us and making us big. So they believe in us. And that's also sometimes extremely helpful, especially in difficult situations when you have these experienced business people that believe in you and tell you, just keep going, you're doing a great job and then help with their network. But it can also be different. I know some companies and some stories of investors that really try to be your new boss. They try to get involved into everything. They have their personal opinions. And in the end, they're the people that gave the money and that have also voting rights and stuff like that. So people have to be aware that you really have to pick your investors well. If you have a really good investor team, can be great to have them on board. But if you make a bad choice, that can really also um, compromise your success in the end and your happiness. Can you give me an example where an investor was particularly helpful? I think the most recent one for me actually is when we were in our fundraising and it wasn't going that well. Like we had a couple of rejections. We were like, okay, what are we doing? Da, da, da. There were some investors who were like, we think you're a great company. Good founders and good companies will always survive. I, we believe in you. You're doing such an amazing job. And for me, This is the most emotional moment I have about them where they help me the most because they were really building us up and supporting us. And it was something very special for me to hear that from them. You can see if someone is experienced or not also in their space because it's also in leadership work in the end. It's not only about the money giver. They need to have big re leadership skills because when you, for example, see a portfolio company down, you see in the numbers it's not working well, not as expected. I think the last thing that works at this moment is building up pressure right, and making them feel bad and terrible, right? Because what happens when you raise pressure on people, it will definitely not lead in the right way. It's about leadership skills and you can see in, also in this space if someone has experience with this and how 
how they react also in critical times. And someone has, has had not so much experience, they might build up pressure and go angry with you and so on. So pick your investors wisely. Yes. If you have the chance. Not everybody has a chance to pick their investors. This is true. Wise, right? I mean, specific, specifically in, in the, the times past like times, this, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Speaking about leadership, what are the experiences that are not related to your career, to your professional path that defined you as leaders and as founders? What benefited me a lot was I did CrossFit quite seriously before that. So before my insurance came into my life, I was very devoted, trained two hours every day, did some competition. And what I learned there is it's a marathon, not a sprint. People that overpace in the beginning, they are left out in the end. And that helped me on my journey to use my energy wisely, embrace breaks and allow myself to take breaks when needed and when it's possible. But on the other hand, when you have to go hard, you really go hard. When you have to go hard, you're gonna, you have to go hard. <laughs> Vicky? I'm a very resilient person and I'm a very experimental person in general. I was always happy to test new things. I, I never had this psychological fear about doing things because I might not be secure. So I was always like, okay, let's test what can happen. This is something that brought me also in this entrepreneurial space in general, because I think that's something you really need to have because when you're always scared about what can happen if this is not going well, uh, I think you would, you would not do a lot because you're just like panicking all day. In general, optimism about future will be bright. That's something that is definitely in my personality and that also helps me a lot. And that's what we all need. This yeah. belief, this strong belief that the future <laughs> will be bright. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this show, share it with friends. Subscribe to our feed on Apple Podcasts or in your podcast app to never miss a new episode. Leave a review in the app you use. Reviews help us to get better and let more people discover this podcast. For updates, follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Telegram. <laughs>